I am Dr. Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is a special Shangri-La Dialogue edition of Sound Strategic, and I am going to be doing quick burst short interviews with a group of people who we picked because they are the people I learn from about Asian security issues, and so we're going to ask them their impressions, what they learned in today, the first day of the Shangri-La Dialogue of 2019. It is my great good fortune to be interviewing Eric Sayers, an adjunct fellow at uh, the Center for a New American Security and the author of really pungent, important articles in War on the Rocks. Okay, what were your impressions? Thanks, Corey. It's great to be here. Um, I've been coming to this for 10 years since I was a student at RSIS here in Singapore in 2009-10. Um, this dialogue started really as a hard power security dialogue. Um, it's defense ministers based and then all of uh, the rest of us that get to join and be a part of this. Um, but really in the last 24 hours, and you started to see this the last couple of years, we talk about you know the grammar of this competition being the military balance and geography and these issues, but we've, we're talking a lot more about digital issues. Last night, this morning, again this afternoon, everybody's talking about 5G, kind of the geography of digital issues and how that's changing the conversation. Um, I think that's an important development. Uh, that's certainly something that Washington's been talking more about. President Trump's going to be going to London to raise this, I guess, with, with Prime Minister May um, just in a couple of days. Uh, the conversation's focused a lot on Europe, but these issues are really affecting us everywhere. Um, I was struck to hear uh, Acting Secretary Shanahan emphasize how much economic security is national security, which underscores your point, I think. That's right. That's right. And, and certainly we've seen the Australians and the Japanese and, and the Kiwis in, in New Zealand um, come out and, and, and kind of make their points clear on, on the future of their digital networks and, and Huawei and, and being a component of 5G. Um, but those conversations are having, happen to happen, need to happen elsewhere as well. And, and here in Southeast Asia, I don't think they're happening enough. Um, Usually, when it comes to this 5G conversation, we talk about espionage and what that might mean in the future. But what is it going to mean in 10 years if the U.S. military wants to conduct operations uh, out of locations where it already operates in the Philippines or here in Singapore or elsewhere if part of the backbone of the infrastructure here that we inevitably are going to have to use is also you know, built and, and constructed by Chinese companies that in some cases are, are pretty close to Beijing? Has it been your impression that the American case on these economic and national security issues is persuasive? Did you, when you were listening to the Singapore prime minister last night or the parade of defense ministers today, you're a good assessor of how American arguments get traction and where they don't get traction. What was your take on it? The speech last night, I think, wasn't surprising to some, but on the other hand, you know, it was a speech that I expect to be delivered maybe four or five years ago. Americans love to give credit to Singaporeans for, for calling balls and strikes, and that's what they've always been good at. We know and understand and respect that they're, you know, a small power here in Southeast Asia, but play a big role in the world because they speak truth to power, and Lee Kuan Yew was certainly known for that. Um, in the speech last night, I didn't hear many strikes get called. We kind of heard, heard the negative stuff kind of get put to the side, or we didn't hear it at all, and and. 
we heard a, a, something coming from the Singaporean Prime Minister that we've heard recently from their foreign minister a couple weeks ago in Washington at CSIS, where they continue to say kind of the talking points we were hearing four or five years ago, before we were seeing reclamation in the South China Sea, before we were talking about these digital issues, before the human rights issues in Xinjiang province, and on and on and so forth. Um, so I think, you know, the world is changing drastically here in the Pacific because of the way that China is wielding its power now that it has it. Um, and we need to hope and expect that, that our friends here in Singapore and elsewhere are going are to call a few more of those strikes going forward. I was I had a similar reaction to the prime minister's speech. It seemed to me creating a moral and a political equivalence between America's engagement in Asia and China's engagement in Asia that, as an American, I bridled at. I was struck, uh, fallen among Australians for drinks last night, at how different their reaction to the prime minister's speech was. They thought what the prime minister was signaling was China is untrustworthy and therefore we cannot allow Chinese producers into our 5G network. And that was not what I heard at all. Do yeah. you? I, I think there's two pieces there. So the prime minister's speech, well organized and constructed, I think you and I can agree on that. And maybe those Australian friends over drinks would agree that as well. In the Q&A session where he was asked about 5G and he showed a lack of an eloquence on that issue that you couldn't find, I don't think, at any other foreign leader in the world. Um, he did raise those concerns. So when given the chance to talk about a particular issue where, where we may have differences with the Chinese on, he did raise those concerns, and maybe we should give him more credit for that. Eric Sayers, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Thank you for your excellent work on these issues that I learned so much from. Thanks, Corey. It's a pleasure. Bonnie Glazer, thank you so much, not just for sharing your perspectives on this, but for the magnificent work you do that I learned so much from. Oh, that's so kind of you, Corey. (laughs) So I'd love to know a couple of impressions from what you have heard over the course of the first day at the Shangri-La Dialogue. Well, I think that the Prime Minister of Singapore in his opening speech was uh, deliberately quite even-handed, really positioning Singapore um, uh, just in almost uh, equidistant between the United States and China. There appears to be, I think, growing concern in the region about this U.S.-China rivalry. Um, But that's, that's, I think, the, the public rhetoric. I do think privately that the Singaporeans are quite worried about China and, of course, very supportive of the United States. And, and I think that the uh, the uh, the acting deputy, uh, excuse me, the acting defense secretary <laughs> Shanahan um, of the U.S. Uh, was really careful in his messaging because he wanted to strike a balance between reassuring the region, expressing support for their priority about economics and, and, and preserving peace and stability and creating space for China to rise, uh, but at the same time also pointing out some of the objectionable behavior that uh, China is engaged in. Uh, in this particular venue, though, it's always important to tell the ASEAN members that the United States really is not trying to make them choose between the United States and China because they feel so sandwiched in the middle. I do think it would be smart American policy to say, because what I take in the conversations is 
Asian countries can feel the space collapsing that they used to have, whereby they could be security partners of the United States and economic partners of China. And the anxiety level feels so high among them that that space is collapsing. And it would be such smart American policy if we're not the ones who tell people they have to choose. I, too, thought I heard... Uh, Acting Secretary Shanahan trying to leave that space open, trying to gracefully handle it. But I was also struck at how much his message was economic. Yes, he did say that economics is inextricably linked to security, uh, did try to emphasize that the United States is trying to provide more uh, economic financial support, uh, particularly for infrastructure projects. But then when he was asked a question, Uh, very specifically about the Belt and Road Initiative and why the United States hasn't yet produced a project of working together with Japan and Australia. He didn't really have a good grasp, I think, of the details and didn't have an answer. And part of the problem is that the Chinese, of course, can almost snap their fingers and uh, provide a loan and start a project. And the way that we do things in the West, of course, is uh, we do our due diligence. But sometimes it's very, very slow. (laughs) So our response is, uh, is still not, I think, as, um, as effective as it should be. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective, Bonnie Glazer. Thank you so much for your excellent work that I and so many others learned from, including your terrific podcast. Thank you, Corey Shockey. Wonderful to talk to you. It is my pleasure now to welcome Dr. Chung-Min Lee, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and also the chairman of the IISS Council, which provides intellectual guidance to the research that we do. Chung-Min, thank you so much for making time to share your perspective. Corey, it's wonderful to be here, and I'm so glad that you had me as one of your first guests <laughs> on the IISS podcast. <laughs> What did you what have you been hearing over the course of prime minister and defense minister's statements the last day? Well, I think the big news in town is the fact that the Chinese defense minister is here uh, for the first time in plus uh, plus a decade and of course the US uh, secretary of defense was here as well so that the US China relationship is so crucial in the region that I think having the two top defense I guess, leaders of their uh, respective countries was the big news in town. I'm struck that not only the Prime Minister of Singapore, but also the Defense Minister of Malaysia both reference this saying about kind of elephants and grass getting trampled. What it suggested to me was how high the level of anxiety is by Asian countries that with a rising China challenging the existing rules of order and the United States seeking to defend them, that they feel like the space for them to be security partners of the U.S. and economic partners of China, that space is narrowing. Is that what it feels like to you? It's almost as if the walls are closing in, inch by inch, (laughs) or a vice uh, in, in a more drastic way. Every single American treaty ally in the region trades more with China than with the U.S., and yet Mm -hmm. maintains critical security ties with the U.S. So the Chinese are saying, at some point in time, you've got to make a decision. Are you with us or against us? And that's something that no Asian country is willing to answer at this particular time. But I think that tension is going to rise in the years and decades ahead. I was struck at how uh, smart it was on on the part of 
Acting Defense Secretary Shanahan to emphasize that the United States is not going to make countries choose. That's clearly not the perception. As the U.S. ratchets up the concern about Chinese behavior and the rhetoric about Chinese behavior, uh, there does the the message that we're not making people choose does not appear to be uh, understood or appreciated by Asian countries. Does it feel that way to you? I think part of the uh, the answer lies in, for example, the Huawei case. The Americans are saying, for obviously good national security reasons, you've got to think twice before you basically go to bed with Huawei. On the other hand, there are many Asian countries who cannot afford more expensive 5G networks. And so, therefore, they're saying we have no choice but to go with Huawei. So for those, I guess, underdeveloped or developing states, that's not really a choice. Mm. And as a result, but Huawei is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And so over the longer term, the Chinese will say, why are you putting in missile defense? That's integrating our, you know, uh, deterrence capabilities. Why are you buying corvettes and frigates and, and so forth? And so as the Japanese, Koreans, Australians, and other American partners beef up their security uh, apparatuses, the Chinese will say, that's not really in our interest. I, I thought it was striking how much that came out in the most interesting confrontation that I've heard so far, which was French Defense Minister Florence Parley saying, we're defenders of the rules-based order and being challenged by a Chinese participant that what, what uh, Western countries term freedom of navigation has to be contingent on Chinese acceptance of that. Well, I think one really uh, critical wake-up call for Americans and their allies in the region is this. The Chinese now have enough power to veto American and allied steps in the region. That's something they didn't have, let's say, 10, 15 years ago. Going forward, they're going to have the ability to project power well into the second island chains. And that creates a very different environment as the one that we were used to for the last 30, 40 years. Um, But that's very, very true because regardless of what the French may say on their critical national interests in the region, the Chinese will say, look, you are a past power, you you have colonial legacies, and we are going to basically build the Asia of the future based on our own interests and grids. I was struck, too, at uh, how how much the U.S. wanted to emphasize a free and open Indo-Pacific and the, the in Secretary Shanahan's talk, he tried to emphasize American military power and all of the challenges seemed to be, but that's not providing the political reassurance that we need. So it felt very asymmetric to me. Did it to you? Uh, in some ways, Corey, and I think the critical asymmetry here is over the longer term, the Chinese will be able to compete with the Americans, not head-to-head in all military arenas, but in more ways than ever before. Yeah. So in 10, 15 years, you look into the future, AIs, drones, rail guns, etc., you know, sixth-generation fighters, the Chinese will be able to have assets that are as good as what the Americans have. And that will be a huge, I guess, uh, a tipping point for America and her allies in the region. Chung Min Lee, thank you so much for sharing your perspective on no. these important issues. Thank and you. thank you for your excellent work that I learned so much from. No, no, basically, uh, I'm really grateful to be part of the IS's team. And thank you for having me today. You 
Our next guest is Hervé Lemieux from the Lowy Institute, and he is the the originator and analyst who produces the most interesting and important assessment of relative power in Asia. And the new one is just out. Before we get to talking about his per, his, what he has perceived in the first 24 hours of the Shangri-La Dialogue, tell us the big takeaways from your outstanding Asia Power Index in 2019. Thank you so much, Corey. Those are incredible words to hear from you. Um, look, we've been very busy uh, over the course of a year producing an update to what is essentially a comprehensive assessment of power. Now, the big challenge is how do you define power? And we have eight thematic uh, measures of power that go from cultural influence to military capability. And the big takeaways this year is essentially the fact that uh, the power differential between the U.S. and China is narrowing, at least for our region, that China's economic soft power remains formidable, um, that uh, the U.S., on the other hand, still has this incredible defense clout, but increasingly we're moving uh, in a region that's going from an open and consensual uh, international order to one defined more uh, by competition and zero-sum politics. So I think that has really big consequences, particularly for the smaller players. We had an impassioned plea from uh, Prime Minister Lee Sein Lung um, last night, um, which spoke exactly to the conundrum faced uh, by the region as these two superpowers are gridlocked, as the U.S.'s strategic predominance fades and as China's strategic ambitions sharpen. I was really struck at how much effort Acting Defense Secretary Shanahan put into listing American military power in the region, right? Four times as many American forces in the Indo-Pacific as anywhere else in the world, 200 ships, 2,000. And what countries in the region, it sounded to me, were actually looking for from the United States was a sense of political reassurance that the erratic nature of American foreign policy and this changing differential of power with China, it doesn't seem to be worrying allies in the region so much about American military dominance, but about American reliability. Is that what it feels like to you as you were listening to this parade of defense ministers? That's essentially my sense as well. I think so much of what power politics is nowadays um, is below the threshold of conflict. Um, therefore, our concepts of security have to broaden. We have to think about the weaponization of interdependence. We have to think about upholding a rules-based order in a security sense. And there's no doubt that the U.S. remains very actively involved and is ranked number one in our uh, assessment of defense networks. Um, but we also have to think about how you manage economic relationships in such a way that countries don't become overly dependent on a particular larger trade partner, that that doesn't become predatorial, that the economic system doesn't uh, get exploited for leverage. And I think that's where they're looking for reassurance from the Americans. And it doesn't really help that I think, in some sense, we're dealing with a bit of a schizophrenic power. Status quo in terms of geopolitics really shoring up, um, I think, defense diplomacy in the region. That's not the America, America's problem. Uh, I think if there is an Achilles heel, it's in terms of its economic relationships. Um, and I think it's also in terms of the kind of sense of unilateralism that's coming out of the Trump administration in waging trade wars, which will have ramifications for the rest of the region as well. And I think one of the powerful points that the Prime Minister of Singapore made last night was that we're all, in some sense, uh, if the U.S. is talking about decoupling from China, the collateral is the region. Um, and we're all, in some sense, uh, uh, decoupling or we risk decoupling coupling from the United States economically. And I think we need to really think through the ripple effects of, of not only 
defense diplomacy, but, but geoeconomic uh, policy. Really smart comments from an alum of the IISS, now the mainstay of the Lowy Institute's Asia Power Index. Hervé Lemieux, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Cor. It's been a pleasure. Our next guest is Jamie Fly, political sharpshooter in the United States and also um, the leader of an important effort called the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Jamie, uh, first, tell us a little bit about the Alliance for Securing Democracy. So the Alliance for Securing Democracy is a a bipartisan transatlantic initiative based uh, out of GMF, uh, German Marshall Fund in Washington. Uh, to tackle the issue of authoritarian interference uh, in democracies, which obviously was revealed in stark uh, detail in 2016 in the U.S., but is a challenge facing democracies across the globe, including here in Asia. And what have you been hearing as this parade of defense ministers and the Singapore prime minister have been talking? Do you hear any resonance of those issues? I think the one challenge is a lot of the discussion uh, here at Shangri-La thus far has really focused on the conventional balance of power, uh, which is much easier to measure, uh, much easier for defense ministers to talk about. But I think given the challenge of authoritarian interference, we need to start thinking more and more about these other tools related to hybrid warfare, uh, which we do see authoritarians deploying uh, in our democracies and which often happen in ways that are difficult to quantify, uh, difficult to track what other countries are doing. Uh, And so I have been struck this morning how much of the conversation is really focused on the kind of traditional, conventional threat rather than uh, the new and emerging challenges. Uh, I also was struck at how much economics are now figuring more and more prominently. Uh, Two years ago, Uh, the American Secretary of Defense was talking almost exclusively about military power. Last year, the American Secretary of Defense was talking about debt trap diplomacy. And this year, Acting Secretary Shanahan said economic security is national security. Why do you think that's playing an increasingly prominent role? Well, I think clearly the competition with China will play out across the economic realm uh, first, um, hopefully only in the economic realm, and we don't get to the point where there's an actual uh, military uh, direct competition. Um, but I think the, the challenge is a lot of our partners, a lot of U.S. partners are kind of caught in the middle on this. And the U.S., uh, despite laying out in the national security strategy, national defense strategy, and acting uh, Secretary Shanahan's speech today, kind of what the U.S. is thinking Um, The U.S. hasn't been, this administration hasn't been entirely clear about our goals. Uh, Are we really trying to decouple economically from China? Are we asking allies and partners here in the region and places like Europe uh, to do that? And some of the recent U.S. actions on on things like 5G and telecoms uh, have really, I think, raised questions in many uh, capitals about what ultimately the U.S. is going to ask of its partners, especially in the economic realm, because that's a tough choice uh, for many countries that are allies of the U.S., but still, I think as the the Prime Minister uh, said last night, are uh, still kind of primary trading partners with China. And uh, just the fundamental realities of their economic situation are going to make it difficult for that to change. Uh, Just before uh, defense ministers and all of us interested in security in Asia gathered, the Prime Minister of Malaysia uh, said that 
Malaysia uh, has has no data to hide, and therefore they don't have to be concerned, and they're going with Huawei. There's been a lot of 5G conversation. Any thoughts either on what you're hearing or what you think countries should be worried about for securing the integrity of their elections mm-hmm. or the national sovereignty of their political systems? Yeah. Well, I think what... Uh Again, the, the Russian experience in the U.S. has shown us that, uh, you know, it's very easy for authoritarians to target, especially democracies that have open, uh, free debate. Uh, what will be even more dangerous in the future, especially given challengers like China, is when you add data, massive amounts of data to the mix about individual citizens, you can hone and target those political messages uh, in a way that could be very powerful from a political perspective. Uh, and so the security of our telecommunications infrastructure is part of that. And obviously, I think the, the U.S. administration is correct to point out that Huawei uh, is too close to the Chinese government, that you cannot ensure the security of any network which Huawei is part of. Um, the challenge there as well, though, is uh, there aren't many alternatives, which you know we've also been remi- reminded about from our European and other partners. Uh, and so it's really re- going to require an, an allied uh, effort by the U.S. with its partners to develop those alternatives, those technological alternatives that uh, can compete with Huawei both on the quality of the product and then also on cost, which is not something that's, uh, that most companies are able to do right now uh, across Asia and Europe. Jamie Fly, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Thanks for having me. I am delighted that our next guest is my old friend, Antoine Neguyer, who is with Airbus, uh, and he is a veteran of the French Air Force. Antoine, what are you, tell me what Airbus is up to, what are you, what makes the uh, Shangri-La Dialogue of interest to Airbus? Thanks, Corey. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Airbus this year is celebrating this 50, 50th anniversary, and we Yay! did this week which means that although people can imagine that we turn to much more European because we're one of the main European aerospace company, uh, we're actually worldwide, and Asia-Pacific is definitely the region into which we see a lot of growth and a lot of interest. In my own business, I'm covering defense and space. I've been uh, to the last Shangri-La Dialogues, probably the six or seven edition. And this time again, for what I've been listening to until uh, since yesterday, uh, last night, a wonderful speech from the Prime Minister here, we here basically to much more understand how much the politics and, and uh, everything which is linked to security will impact the market into which we're working. Mm-hmm. Uh, although on our side, we'd rather look to long cycle the defense industry, like to have stability. What we see is everything but stability. What we see is things moving from one Shangri-La dialogue to the others. Obviously, the big countries are actually big players in the region, but that is uh, really important for us because that has an impact on, on our business. I would. I have been struck over the last couple of Shangri-La dialogues at how economics is increasingly central to the defense conversation. Has it felt that way to you as well? Definitely, and we heard even this morning that made even more clearly by the U.S. Uh, Secretary of Defense, who actually mentioned security and economy being completely interlinked, or that is a little bit linked to what is happening between U.S. and China on trade, but that has an impact in European, that has an impact on the business everywhere. 
we are discussing a lot about 5G and Huawei, but the whole business would be almost listening and understanding and, and also uh, have the impact on all of these kind of uh, economic uh, uh, trade decision w which might happen. On the different side, we have here, which is unique in Shangri-La Dialogue, not only the, uh, the countries of the region, but even the Europeans coming, which means for us, industry like Airbus, we come not only to understand the region, but also to see the whole dynamics of the key countries, including Europeans, Americans, Japanese, Australian, India, everyone is here. It's definitely a must, a must uh, event, <laughs> and that's why we're so happy to be, to be here every year. Thank you for that compliment. I was struck that of all of the defense ministers I listened to over the last 24 hours, France's defense minister, Florence Parley, I thought had the best showing. She, her speech was tough-minded, intellectually serious, uh, but graceful and funny in equal measure. Uh, when she was challenged by one of the Chinese delegates, uh, a she was unflinching and, and yet not aggressive in insisting that the rules-based order uh, requires all of us and France as a Pacific power um, to enforce the rules. And, and China doesn't get to carve out new rules. Did, were you struck at, at the tone of that? I was just struck. I was rather much proud, probably a bit biased. In my last participation, when I was still working for the uh, previous Minister of Defense, he came here and he started to shape this, this notion of France as a Pacific country as well, which led to a lot of um, different speeches, the last of which from President Macron mentioned this morning in Australia, set the tone with regard to France being in the region not only because they got interest and population, but because they want also to be part of what is happening for the stability and security of the region. Mm -hmm. Of course, this year... French Minister Parley is, of course, enjoying a lot the fact that the, the carrier, the French carrier Charles de Gaulle is actually here at Bay, <laughs> which, of course, proved not only by words but by deeds that when we say we're in the region, we are actually in the region. So a carrier is not saying you're long, but I think that that is a French uh, commitment, which is actually we're here. And you mentioned that this time it was stronger than last, last year. As the message is still the same, but it's good to see that irrespective of what is happening between U.S. and China, France is keeping a kind of straight position with regard to be a player, also to help the, the Asian country and Australia and others uh, allies to, to actually go for the stability we're look, all looking for. I have been uh, spending a lot of time thinking about the question of how to preserve the liberal order if the United States um, abandons the project. And uh, for me, I think I see all sorts of signs that middle powers, strong, liberal, rules-based powers like France and Australia and Japan are really stepping up their cooperative efforts with each other. And I think France uh, has been a leading role model for other countries. And France as a Pacific power really cements that. Thank you so much for sharing your Thank views, you my much, friend. Colleen. I appreciate it. <laughs>